0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've talked a few times about burnout and mentorship, and these are important topics. But what about diversity, equity, and inclusion? These are important topics as well and should be discussed. My guest today is Dr. Carla Ellis. Dr. Ellis is a renal and GU pathologist, and she is also the president of the newly formed Society of Black Pathologists. Today, Dr. Ellis will tell us about her career so far, and then we'll talk about the SBP, what it is, and how it was created. All right, here's Dr. Carla Ellis. Glad to have you here.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: We're going to talk quite a bit about the Society of Black Pathologists, of which you're the president, Uh, but before we get into that, let's start a little uh, about your background. Sure. Sure. So let's start with uh, how you got interested in pathology.
1: Well, I originally became interested in pathology after the idea of becoming a pathologist assistant was suggested to me by a family member who was familiar with, you know, sort of forensic pathology. You know how everybody loves forensic pathology. They think it's so interesting. Right. And so he um, worked at. He worked in security at Georgetown University, and I guess he had come across some information about the pathologist assistant program at the University of Maryland. And so he suggested it to me, and I took a look at it. And um, and I know you're a PA dentist, so that's wonderful that I'm talking to a colleague here. Yes, I am. Oh, uh, yeah. Great. And um, at the time, I had just graduated from college at Howard University with a degree in psychology, and I was just like, well, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't want to go all the way to like the PhD level in psychology, so I looked at this PA program, and I, you know, I thought it sounded interesting, so I applied and got in, and then I. Worked as a PA for three years, um, so that's really where my interest in pathology started. Because I just, you know, kind of had this bachelor's degree. I thought about maybe going to medical school, but hadn't finished all the the pre med prerequisites. So I kind of was just sort of in a in a holding pattern. And then I just really, really enjoyed my time as a PA student. And so then, after I graduated, I uh, started working as a PA, and I just said, you know what? I'm halfway through the med school prerequisites. Why not just finish them up? Um, because I had a minor in biology, so most of it I had done anyway, just as part of my minor. And then I finished it up, took the MCAT, and then got accepted into medical school. With the, you know, caveat that if I don't get accepted into medical school, I have a great career as a pathologist assistant. And so went ahead and went to medical school and wanted to really love something else like OBGYN or P's or some sort of, you know, family medicine or something like that. But I just kind of navigated back to pathology and just really, really liked that, had that background in it and then matched at Johns Hopkins and the rest was history. And what I find um, when I'm talking to medical students and trying to get people to kind of be interested in a pathology residency is that, A lot of times that's what happens. Somebody has some prior exposure, their parent was a pathologist or they worked in a lab somewhere. And that's how they find out about pathology and kind of get interested in it. So that was the same for me as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I've had many of the people that have been on this podcast have told stories like that, where it was a family member or something like that, that influenced their decision to. uh, Yeah. to pursue pathology.
1: I think that's so interesting that that's kind of always how it comes up to be, you know, because, you know, when you're a kid or younger, you don't really get a concept of what a pathologist is. You don't, it's not like you go to the doctor and you ever see a pathologist. So it's always like kind of this kind of the best kept secret of medicine is the pathology and all the, the, all the careers that are available in that field. So yeah, very common story. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Now, did you feel that your background especially with the grossing did that give you an advantage
1: um it did it did and you know and i only had my experience i didn't have another experience to compare it to so i felt like yeah it did help me just kind of be familiar with handling organs and seeing autopsies and knowing how to you know be careful with blades and that kind of thing which a lot of pathology residents who haven't had the experience of being a pa or any prior exposure to pathology, they kind of like, you know, they just do all their internal medicine rotations and then come to pathology and they're kind of, that's their first time seeing that kind of thing. So if any, the most, the way that it helped me most was just to be kind of comfortable in a, in a pathology laboratory and around organs. But where I worked as a PA was for a private practice group that was very small and they just did very common, you know, resections. Like they didn't do anything major, just like colons and kidneys and, Occasional breasts and things like that. So then when I met to Johns Hopkins and we were doing these crazy facectomies and, you know, and these really, really, you know, radical neck dissections that I just, I did feel like kind of like, you know, the thought was like, oh, you're a PA, you should know how to do all of this. I'm like, I've never seen a Whipple before. (laughs) Like I've never done a Whipple (laughs) before because that just wasn't the type of specimens that I would get. So I kind of felt like it helped me, but then it also kind of hindered me a little bit too, because I had really high expectations from my attendings and I had just had a very limited experience to like the wide variety of types of surgical specimens there were out there.
0: You went on, uh, did fellowships in nephropathology and then genital urinary pathology. Correct. Okay. Now I'm curious how you got interested in these subspecialties.
1: Well, what it it was, uh, to be completely honest, it was my background as a PA. And, you know, and as you know, you know, you handle all these different types of surgical specimens. And my favorite organ to gross was always a kidney, Mm -hmm. you know, because it was such an interesting organ. The handling of it was straightforward. You just, you know, take off those margins and bisect it. And the tumors were always interesting looking. And I've had, you know, family members that have had renal failure. And so it just had so many different ties and connections. So I was always interested in the kidney. And then when I got a a pathology residency interview at Johns Hopkins, they said, well, is there anyone specific that you want to meet or do you have any specific interests? And I said, well, I like the kidney, you know, and so they said, well, we'll we'll have you meet with Lorraine Rackison, who I subsequently learned was a very famous kidney pathologist, but I didn't know that at the time because I had no clue about anything. And so she, when I met with her, she was the one that broke the news to me that studying the kidney in pathology residency and fellowship was just not one thing, right? Like there's two separate fellowships for tumors of the kidney and then non-tumor kidney disease. So like, for For instance, if you're in, if you want to be a neuropathologist, right, you don't have to do a separate fellowship for like Alzheimer's and dementias. And then another one for CNS tumors, like it's all the same fellowship, but for kidney, if you want to study tumors, you have to do a urologic pathology or a GU path fellowship. And then a renal path is what we call it fellowship for all the non-tumor kidney diseases. So I was like, I really like the kidney. I'm not sure if I want to do two extra years after I finish my general pathology residency. Um, So I marinated on it, you know, for a couple of years as I was kind of going through residency and I really, really couldn't decide. I talked to my mentor about it. And he said that it wasn't a good idea because you, you know, it's you either one or the other, and it's hard to practice both. And, So thankfully, I didn't listen to him, you know, because I just couldn't decide. And so I did both. And it was uh, the best decision I ever made because it actually made me more marketable when I was finished with training and I was getting ready to get a job out in the workforce. It was actually very helpful for me to have both of those backgrounds and fellowship training in both of those subspecialties. So it ended up working out.
0: (laughs) Now, I know that just this past uh, the the spring meeting of the uh, American Association of pathologist assistance, you gave a presentation on GU path. Is that right?
1: That is correct. Yes.
0: Okay. And I, from, I didn't attend from, but from what I heard, it was very well received. Everybody loved it.
1: Oh, that's, that's so good to hear. Yeah. It's, it's a very, so like I said, kidney was my favorite specimen to gross, but that all of the GU organs are interesting and some of them can be quite, quite complicated. So like a, you know, assist a radical cystoprostatectomy, which for any, you know, medical students or people who aren't familiar is the, you know, removal of the bladder and the prostate and the seminal vesicles and part of the urethra. It's just a very complex specimen. So, Mm. you know, or like a panectomy, you know, the panectomies, you don't see, you know, those are things that are done. Like I had a lot at one institution, but I haven't had seen any since I've moved to Chicago. So it's just one of those things where it depends on where the surgeons who do those are. So everybody has a varying amount of experience with those types of resections, So what happened was the most recent version of the the governing body over how we do our cancer staging uh, protocols when we get a resection had just been updated. And a lot of those updates were specific and related to grossing technique. So I just took all of the GU chapters and just put them into like a little talk and just talked about how, you know, even though I'm a pathologist, there are a lot of things that are done and can be done in the gross room to help with with some of those new updates. So I just sort of made the connection between grossing and the work I have to do as far as documentation, when I'm signing out those cases. I don't know. Is it still available? Can, I don't know if it's, if you're not a member of the AAPA, if you can have access to it, I'm not sure, but I'm not, I'm not sure, even if you are a member, how long it's available, but um, it's I, something I, that.
0: I know that members can get it. I think it's available for two years. I'm not sure about non-members, but you know, we get a lot of those types of specimens where i work mm-hmm. uh, so i think i'm going to have to look this one up and 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 watch it myself
1: yeah yeah it's not a lot it's not like mind blowing i mean if you're a pa and you're familiar with these specimens it's not like i'm i'm telling you anything new i'm just informing you of how much you know some of the things you do and some of the different techniques you can do will help your pathologist who has to sign these cases out because they actually need to know For example, where did this lymph node come from? Is it a regional inguinal lymph node or is it a, you know, periaortic lymph node? Because the distance away from the organ determines the end staging and that just kind of thing. So I think it's probably the most helpful to someone like you who's a pathologist assistant who's done these specimens before. But you're like, oh, okay, I didn't realize that, you know, when the pathologist is signing this out, how important what I just did is to them and how important it is for me to include that in my gross description, because they need to know that for their staging. That kind of makes sense, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely makes sense.
1: Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah.
0: All right, now I want want to move on to your role as Director of Wellness, Diversity and Inclusion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so first let's, let's start at the beginning of that. How did you come to take on this role?
1: So I uh, came to take on this role here at Northwestern for a few reasons. The first one is because I'm very interested and passionate about all of those topics. I know it's like a lot of things to, be the, to talk about or in a title, but like they all are super important to me. And that role is actually not one that's standard at many academic institutions. So in other words, prior to very recently, that role as director of wellness, diversity, equity, and inclusion is, didn't exist at any given institution. So I'm very, very glad that Northwestern's pathology department has prioritized these issues and made sure that there is a dedicated agenda to address them. And so when I was, so a little bit about me, I finished up at Johns Hopkins and then I took a position where I was signing out both nephropathology and GU pathology at Emory. And while I was at Emory, I was the first wellness committee chair where I was on faculty before coming to Northwestern. And my main task was to create a burnout prevention and wellness agenda for the pathology residents at Emory, because at that time, it had also very recently become an ACGME mandate to have a wellness plan in place. Um, So we, you know, I, we started the committee, we had monthly events. I I had massages for the residents. We had bowling night uh, chair massages. Everyone was fully dressed. This was like not, you know, not like that <laughs> kind of massage, Got but, it. Okay. Uh good. Okay. Um, picnics and then educational sessions on financial wellness and mindfulness and just kind of anything to give the residents and fellows a break from the routine. And so that I had a lot of success with that. I think it was, um, it was, it was great, but there wasn't a real diversity committee at the time at Emory. So when I moved from Atlanta to Chicago to work at Northwestern, I wanted to make sure my efforts were continued and that diversity, equity, and inclusion were also prioritized. So I sort of, you know, negotiated for this role based on the work that I had done at Emory. And so and so here I am. And so we've got, you know, I'm establishing or have established an diversity committee, a wellness committee um, involved in a lot of, of the sort of Northwestern universities, um, a program called the Scholars of Wellness program, where we learn about burnout prevention we have well-being councils and it's just very important, especially now with everything that's going on, to make sure that, you know, medical care providers have optimized well-being and we're working on burnout prevention. Um, so it's been it's been good. It's difficult because, you know, people say, hey, you're the you know, the person the, the wellness person go talk to this person or wave your magic wand and make everybody happy. And it's, that's actually not how it works (laughs) at all. And so that's been the, like the hardest part about it for me, is just to try to keep everybody sort of patient, you know, people don't like change. And then when they finally accept change, they want it to happen overnight. And so I think that burnout prevention and and prioritization of wellness is a, is a long-term, you got to look at the end game. You got to do little things at a time, you know, to make, change over a long period of time that's going to be sustainable if that makes sense
0: yes it does and and burnout that's something that i've heard a lot about and read a lot about lately among medical students and residents Um, it's an important issue and it's interesting to to hear that you you're uh, making some progress with that i'm curious about the committee though how do you how did you create the committee like where where do the committee members come from? Are they just uh pathology department or is it other departments throughout the university or how does that work?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. My role is like, is very specific to the pathology department. So I'm the director of wellness diversity inclusion for pathology. And as I said, I'm not certain that a lot of the other, like, I don't know what orthopedic surgery, I don't even know if they have someone in that position. So first I would like to, you know, make it clear that I'm very, very fortunate, you know, that my chairman is very supportive and has asked me to address the department. He had asked me to address the department in my role to give everyone information about it. And I was sort of giving a talk at one of our departmental town halls. And I literally just very simply said, I would like to create a diversity committee. If anyone is interested, just contact me. That's literally all I did. And it was so simple, and I have had so much support and enthusiasm. Our current diversity, we call it Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee for the department has about 20 people on it, and when we started it, unfortunately, it was right in the middle of COVID, the evolving, you know, this is about this time last year, so we couldn't find a place to meet, and there was Zoom fatigue, and it was just very, very difficult to try to engage everyone during that time. But we've gotten through it and we're meeting next week. We're going to discuss Pride Month. So next month, June, is uh, Pride Month, like Mm -hmm. National Pride Month. And then we're going to talk about the ACGME requirements for diversity initiative. So just like when I did wellness at Emory, now there's new ACGME requirements for diversity so that the trainees learn about that. And by trainees, I mean residents and fellows. Our chairman was kind enough to purchase copies of the Henrietta Lacks book, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that story.
0: Oh, yes, I am.
1: Oh, yeah. So he bought that. Anyone who's interested in our department, again, support for diversity, could have that book. He just bought a bunch of copies of it. And so uh, we're, people are reading it and we're going to have like a book club about it and a lot of other like really fun things. I try to make it light and positive and a safe space and patching the department into various resources around the northwestern community. So it's like a safe space for these conversations and again I'm just so I'm my job is so so easy cuz I am in a department with great people and with so much collegiality and enthusiasm. I'm just I'm not, I'm just so blessed.
0: Yeah, that's that's an important point because these issues th- these are some pretty heavy issues, you know. Yeah. And it's I think it's great that you're trying to add some fun, a little lightness, like you said.
1: Yeah. And, and yes, I am doing that. Yes. And yes, I am doing that. And I, I agree with you. It's important not to shy away from the heavy topics, but I want people to be in a space where it's, it's okay. And comfortable to talk about those things because the worst thing you can do is just not talk about it and, you know, think one way without hearing other people's perspectives and that's the whole point of diversity right to to hear from and to get to know and to empathize with people who have had a different experience than you and if you aren't willing to if you don't feel comfortable and safe enough to discuss those things then you'll it, you'll it'll be the same it'll always be the same so i think it's just you know it's it's so easy it's just literally just having a conversation about these things that that really helps people to, you know, walk away with a different viewpoint. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, definitely have to in- introduce the heavy topics and have discussions about those, but also want to mix that in with light things too, you know?
0: Right. I read an interview with you did with ASCP and you were talking about this kind of committee and you mentioned something called a diversity ambassador. Mm-hmm. Is that like an official title or was that, what did, what did that mean?
1: I think what might have happened there with that, with the print of that, is they may have been sort of tr- mixing up the, uh, so I'm an, ambas- I'm an ambassador for the United States and Canadian Academy of Pathology, and that role I try to make sure that people in my department, especially like first-year residents again that are coming in and have no idea about pathology or what what's going on, um, are aware of our sort of one of our major pathology societies and they know what the benefits of membership are um, and that it's free for residents and that, you know, the, we encourage people to come to our yearly meeting, just like the AAPA meeting, but for, you know, for pathologists more. And I wasn't—I an, I just ended my term as the ambassador for the USCAP. And then I think maybe between that and just being the director for diversity, equity, and inclusion, it may have kind of been mixed up With kind of like a you know a melange of both of those things but i think if i did say that I, i probably if i did say i was a diversity ambassador somewhere it may have been just referring to my role in this department but i am also an ambassador for the united states and canadian academy of pathology
0: this is the people of pathology podcast with our guest dr carla ellis we'll be right back You've heard me talk about LabVine before, and this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credit. And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the US and the Royal College of Pathologists in the UK. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the ConfLab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts, and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a Conflab expert. DressA Med has been designing and manufacturing high quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out DressA Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Carla Ellis on the People of Pathology podcast. As we said earlier, you're the president of the Society of Black Pathologists. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hear about the origin of this society, like where it came from, the original idea and things like this. Now, I read that this was something that you'd been thinking about for years. Yeah. Okay. How how did you come up with this idea?
1: So a society of black pathologists was not always a thing. It was just some nebulous sort of thing that a lot of people, a lot of pathologists of color would talk about and say, Hey, we're at this meeting, the SCAT meeting, the ASAP meeting. We just need a place where, you know, cause sometimes you walk into these meetings and you feel like you're the only person of color <laughs> there. You know, it's sure. just, we're, we're just, it's just in, we're in the minority and that's, that's what it is. And it's something that not only myself, but many other people have discussed, but, because of people not having the bandwidth or the time, or as anyone within a medical career, you're transitioning for, I just told you three different institutions I had to pick up and move from Baltimore to Atlanta, to Chicago and all, you know, it's just you're a physician and you're a pathologist and you're constantly being pulled in a million different directions. So it was very, it's just like one of those things that this is a great idea, but nobody really had the time to put pen to paper and really focus on trying to make it a reality. And so when Twitter became a thing, this is, and I had thought about this long before Twitter and social media was ever a thing. That's how old I am, but um, (laughs) (laughs) a small group of like some people in pathology, some uh, people of color got really inspired by Dr. Melissa Upton who is not a person of color, um, who is the past president of the American Society of Clinical Pathology, Mm -hmm. um, which is another major pathology organization, which I really like because they encompass the entire laboratory. So the the USCAP is what it is, and it's fine, but it's just sort of pathologists. And the ASCP takes into consideration all members of the pathology laboratory, path assistants, MLTs, and that kind of thing. And so she, um, as past president, she was a major, major influencer on the concept of diversity and inclusion in pathology specifically, because people feel, I think we just get forgotten about as, as a medical subspecialty. Like people we're just some people, some nebulous lab where people spend, send their, speci- you know, tubes of blood and specimens right. and somehow they get results out. Like people don't get what we are. So obviously diversity and inclusion is kind of forgotten about in that space as well. So she was a part of the group that mentored us and supported us. And she really inspired me to just, you know, get moving, get the group going. And because she founded and advocated for the diversity committee for the ASCP, and I want to say the ASCP was the first large pathology organization that actually had a specific diversity committee. She already had the relationships in place to facilitate a meeting with this small group of people who had kind of been discussing stuff on Twitter and the ASCP leadership. And so the ASCP, as you mentioned, they support smaller organizations and societies within pathology. So when we kind of started talking, we Dr. Upton kind of introduced us to ASCP leadership who were extremely supportive of our group and offered to help us get up and running with financial and administrative support. So that is, you know, a lot, lot less stress on people who already have busy work lives. If we're offering you, hey, we'll do your, you know, we'll do be your treasurers and we'll Kind of take minutes at your meetings and we'll help you, you know, with our own current ASCP membership base. We'll blast out and just say, hey, this is a thing, you know, consider joining, you know, and so that made it a lot easier to to start with that sort of, you know, helping hand from the ASCP.
0: Okay, so so you were connected with ASCP right from the beginning.
1: Yes. Yep. Because Dr. Upton is the past president and the founder of the diversity inclusion committee for the ASCP. So once we kind of started meeting as a group, she somehow got LinkedIn and she thought it was a great idea and she has all these resources to help us. And she it's just been, she's just been amazing. She's yeah, we, we kind of were dealing with, yeah, if it hadn't, we, I don't know that we would have, but if we had didn't have that support and that help, I don't know, I would have been able to get something this big off the ground with just a bunch of busy pathologists, which is why it hadn't become a thing prior to now. So we really, really are indebted to the ASCP for helping us um, and to Dr. Upton for helping us with that. You know, you, you were kind of asking about my, you know, experience is, was it inspired by my experiences? And yeah, that whole story that I told you earlier about college and, mm-hmm. you know, psych resident or psych major and the PA school and path residency and all that that that, all of that happened with very, very few mentors of color during my leading up to my career where I am now. And the reason why this is important is that it's not to say that I didn't have any mentors at all. You know, I actually had quite a few, the same guy who said, don't do, you know, don't do renal and GU pathology. You know, he, he was a, a mentor of sorts. Right. But it, but it's it's very well documented that people in academic medicine or any field really have much more long-term success and less imposter syndrome and are subject to fewer microaggressions when they have a a mentor or a leader that has something in common with them especially when that commonality is centered around the lack of something okay so so for example let's say i'm a i'm a latinx medical student okay and i and i really want to go into orthopedic surgery because i had scoliosis as a child or or my one of my siblings did and I took care of them and I saw my orthopedic surgeon and I, you know, saw how the effect that it had on my little brother or whatever. So if I'm now in, in medical school and I see or meet or know of a Latinx orthopedic surgeon, of which that is the vast minority, um, as far as I know. In my experiences of medical school and mentors and clinical experiences, I have this one person that, hey, you pro- can, you know have a lot of the same cultural experiences that I do, and you did it, you know, and then you'll look at them and you'll say, hey, I can do this too, you know. It just inspires confidence when you are in a field that you love and that you've worked so hard to be in, and then you see others that have something in common with you, especially something that is centered around a lack of something or a cultural experience that have been successful as well. You know, it's not about negating other people and, and leaving, excluding other people. It's about the inclusion of my the people in the minority and seeing how they what they do and seeing how they can inspire you to be successful.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because I mean, let's be real. I'm a white man. Yeah. If I'm looking around for another white male mentor, that's easy to find.
1: Correct. Yes. Right. Yeah. And a lot of my mentors were white men. The the guy, again, going back to the guy who told me not to do renal. (laughs) He was was a, a liver pathologist, you know, and he at Hopkins and he's great. We're still friends to this day. But, you know, it's not that he gave me bad advice because he wasn't a black person. It's just that, you know, sometimes you. When you're in a position of there's a difference in power you know what i mean when you have sure, you're sure. a, a path resident and your mentors are all these famous people at johns hopkins you also have to keep in mind god I, I really have to you know behave myself and i have to act right you know a lot of these recommendations are word of mouth if i if i say something wrong or if i do something wrong then what if they give me a bad you know evaluation or what if they interpret that as me not being smart. And then, then I, you know, I can't, you know, at the end of the day that eventually affects your livelihood. So I think sometimes there's a little bit more of a comfort level and a little bit more willingness to open up when you see someone that's in com- you have something in common with you. Mm-hmm. And again, Dr. Upton is not a person of color and is she, and there would be no SBP without her. So I'm, I'm saying that experiences differ You know what I mean? And it's not it's not the it's the exception rather than the rule. But I think that generally speaking, I I think that people of different cultural groups would be glad to be aware that something like this exists. It doesn't it's not going to exist at every person's institution, but it's a national thing where if you just really know, you know, you want some help in this area or you want someone to talk to, or you feel like you're struggling somehow, you know, then maybe they, they, they could reach out and be mentored by us. So. Mm
0: -hmm. So that leads me to a question then the, is the SBP only for pathologists?
1: So, yeah, I think of all of the questions that you asked today, I think this is the most important, important one. And I'm so grateful for this podcast because it's given me the opportunity to clarify a question that a few folks after our initial social media blast Mm -hmm. about the society of black pathologists had. And I just want to clarify that the society of black pathologists is open to anyone, anyone with an interest or a passion around our mission. It is open to anyone of any nationality or ethnic background. It is open to anyone in the laboratory workforce, any type of person in the, even people in the, members of the medical industry, absolutely anyone who has an interest in a, in a, or a passion in our mission, which is follows. I'm going to read our mission off of our website. Okay, please. The Society of Black Pathologists is a nonprofit organization dedicated to addressing barriers to diversity and inclusion, working to increase the number of Black and underrepresented minorities in pathology, providing mentorship to support career and leadership development, and expanding research in the areas of healthcare disparities. So just to clarify, and I am thank you for this platform, in no way, shape or form do we exclude anyone or discriminate anyone for our membership because that is what people of color have had to work for years to dismantle. So it wouldn't make any sense for us to now have this platform and then exclude anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to summarize, you don't have to be black or a pathologist to support and collaborate with black pathologists and other people of color in the medical laboratory field. You know, and so it's just, I just wanna make it absolutely clear that it's open to everyone, if every member of the lab, every ethnicity, um, but, but our mission is kind of more specific, but our membership is open. So hopefully that clarifies some things.
0: Yes, yes it does. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. Yeah. I wanted to kind of go back to the issue of mentorship again. Okay. But first, you know, I was thinking about when you were talking about your time at Hopkins. Yeah. And and how you felt like you had to sort of live up to all these other famous attendings you were working with. Yeah. Did you ever feel like being the only person of color resident that you had to do a good job so they didn't think other people of color like it would ruin that sort of reputation does that make any sense
1: i know exactly what you're what you're saying okay so you're basically the question is did i because i was the only black pathology resident at johns hopkins way back in a year that i won't mention did i feel like i had to hold on my back and shoulders the entire black community in this city of baltimore okay mm-hmm. so that my of famous attendings and even my co-residents wouldn't feel negatively about black people and other people of color. And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. I felt a tremendous amount of pressure, you know, because I would always think like, gosh, you know, I wonder what, this is just a pathology department. What about all the clinical departments, you know, that see all these, you know, see black patients and see lower income patients and see of our, variety of backgrounds in real hands-on providing patient care, healing interactions. Where is their representative to show that, hey, yes, I'm here. Yes, I'm very well educated. Yes, I'm a medical student. Yes, I'm very smart. Yes, I'm a pathologist. You know, it's just such a stark contrast. And yes, you do feel like you have to, to, you know, because you know, conversations would happen, you know, people didn't care that I was a black person in the room. People would talk about different things and say very hurt. This was a long time ago before a lot of these things became, you know, it wasn't in vogue to be PC. You right, know, right. and so it was it was a very it was a very hurtful experience. It was very hard to be silent um because of all the reasons I said you have to make sure you toe the line because this is your livelihood here. And so, yeah, it was, and that's the exact reason why one of the most important times in my life where I wished something like the SBP existed, to talk about what you just asked me with someone else that may have experienced that. And that's kind of what is driving me to make this organization a success. And i yeah, I'm, I'm just so glad to have this opportunity to sort of say that and put that out there so that people understand You know, what's the reason behind it is and the motivation behind it is and the experiences that people of color in medicine have that is just not talked about. People don't talk about it because, A, who cares? You know, a lot of times I'd be like, yeah, I could talk about how upset I am about this racist comment that my co-resident just made, but who's going to care? You know, who? who, who, and so what are they going to do? What is the point of me vocalizing this? So then you get all this frozen rage, you get all these experiences that are so hurtful to you that you can't talk about. And then, you know, it doesn't Does, does it stay frozen forever, it comes out, it melts and comes out in other ways. And that is kind of where I looped back around and got interested in, you know, wellness and burnout prevention, because for a lot of times for people of color, those two things are the same diversity, equity and inclusion, and wellness are hand in hand for a lot of people of color in academic medicine. I mean, a lot of times people look at it and say, oh, well, wellness is different from diversity. But, you know, for people of color, those two things can be one and the same, you know. Sure. So, okay. yeah. So that's I, I'm glad. Thank you for asking that question. I hope I verbalize that. OK, because, yeah, that, that's very, very important.
0: OK, good. You, you actually asked the question better than I did.
1: <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> okay. And answered it, too oh okay well yeah i'm glad i'm glad i was able to do
0: that Yeah. You know yes, me too. all right now now back to the issue of mentorship then are there plans for, for how you're going to formalize that i guess like are you going to go to medical school and offer this or is something like that or is it kind of too early i mean i know the organization is brand new yeah but are there kind of future plans in that area
1: For sure. Yeah, that's that's one of our major and let me just make it clear that starting an organization like this and getting it up and running is a lot of hard work, even when we're supported, even when we're supported by another society like the ASCP. We are in our infancy right now, um, but one of our main goals are building our membership, you know, and making letting people know who we are and what we're about. And then the next thing is creating committees you know, for folks to be involved in, to help the organization growing, to create leadership opportunities for people to aid in their faculty development and promotion. And one of the main committees that one of the first committees that I would like to establish once we get kind of up and running is the mentorship committee. And so that would be uh, a group of individuals that would be listed on our website And that would be available to our membership, you know, to kind of have a consultation. So say you're the me at Johns Hopkins Suffering and you want to talk to somebody and you can look at, you know, people's bios on our mentorship committee website and say, hey, could I make an appointment or is it possible to have a consultation or, you know, just a small Zoom chat with you so I can to express my issues that I'm having? Or, you know, it doesn't always have to be that it could be, well, I'm really interested in OBGYN pathology, and there's no OBGYN fellowship in my residency where I'm doing residency. And do you, can you connect me with someone who might know more about this? You know, and and that person that that they would get connected to doesn't have to be a person of color. I can think of someone right now that if somebody asked me that, that I could, you know, I could send the, uh, an SBP member to, you know, that could help them and knows more a lot about that. So it's offering mentorship in a lot of different ways, and so that's like the first committee that I want to try to establish, but yeah, establishing committees. And there's so many things that have to be done to, to establish the scaffolding, you know, for this society that we're going to be building upon and filling in the holes once the like, you know, sort of the, the scaffolding is in place, but yeah, yep. We were definitely going to do that.
0: What about like meetings or conferences? Do you have any plans for that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So we have our first um, sort of our inaugural event. Is going to be the Companion Society meeting at the annual ASCP meeting. So I'm not sure how much of your listenership are ASCP members, but there isn't going to be that they have their annual meeting, just like the annual AAPA meeting, etc. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be a Companion Society meeting. It's going to be great content. We're still working on it. It's either going to be some amazing keynote speaker, if we can get someone, or just if we can't get anyone, it's going to be a panel of our founding members that are going to be discussing different topics. And so that's going to be our first sort of public facing event. And then just within the SBP, we have meetings as well. We meet not as regularly now um, because we're still, like I said, in our infancy, but the plan is to meet probably, you know, every, I don't know, quarter or so. And then as president, I'll have, you know, communications that'll go out to the membership, kind of letting everybody know what's happening. So, yep. I'm very very excited about it. I wish yeah. I could do it full time.
2: Right. But right, I can't yeah.
1: <laughs> cuz I don't get paid to do it. <laughs> I've got to, you know, have food to eat and a roof over my head. So I can't unfortunately do that full time. I'd actually have to be a pathologist, but um yeah, it's definitely helping my own wellness, you know, and sure, sure. that creative outlet to be able to provide this for people who who need it, you know.
0: Sure, yeah, creative and uh like a positive impact. Yeah. This has been really fascinating. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to mention before we wrap up?
1: So I just wanted to give you a little bit of a, a, a peek into what we're thinking for the SBP as far as the future. OK, um, we have we're like I said, we're hoping to have consistent content at national meetings. What I really want to develop after the mentorship committee is a membership database um, that can be accessed by. Any educational planning committee from other pathology organizations. So, say for instance, you're, you know, you're, you're on the, did you say you were on the board with the AAPA or something like that? I was, yeah. Yeah. So, say you're planning your AAPA meeting and you would like someone from, you know, a member of a diverse community to talk about. GI pathology, right? So on that webpage, of a, which would be a separate click on our website, you would have our membership database that can be organized by different things. And so they would have their CVs uploaded if they wanted. And so you could just kind of search for GI, GI pathology. Then you could look at their experiences and you say, oh, okay, this person's been doing it for this long and this, and this is what they're interested in, you know, and then this would be a good person to to invite to give us some educational content. Because like, like you say that, talk that I did for the GU grossing Mm -hmm. the only reason why they knew of me was because I'm a former PA and my friend the the AAPA meeting in I want to say 2019 was in Chicago and I had just moved here one of my PA friends like was here for the meeting just it's completely random and was like helping me move. Like she was helping me unpack boxes, but she would like take off from the meeting and kind of help me unpack. And she was like, I should give your name to so-and-so, you know, for, for, to be able to talk because you used to be a PA and now you do all this GU pathology and kidney stuff. And so it was a complete word of mouth. I happened to know somebody who happened to be in town at the same time thing that was able, that provided me the opportunity to give this talk but what if that didn't happen <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and, you know that's it. so it's just trying to set up a database where you know you can see the outstanding research and clinical work that people in our community have done and it's available for you to be able to invite people to engage with your community on those things you just happen to that membership and then um I d- definitely want to I hope to have some wider you know, a wider base of regional meetings sort of like the AAPA where they have their spring meeting and they have their big meeting, you know, with very focused content for CME. So we have opportunities for people to, you know, progress and do their faculty development and promotion. So basically in summary, we have a long way to go, um, but it's something that is needed now um, yes. for uh, and will probably be needed for some time. And I'm just, again, happy to be doing it, happy to be talking about it and You know, I'm glad it's a thing now and not just something that is in my imagination.
0: (laughs) Right. Right.
1: Yeah. The one other thing I wanted to mention to your your listeners is that about the SVP is that membership is free if you are a trainee or a, you know, sort of a junior member. So if you're a medical student or a pathology resident, um, or if you're in training medical technology school in some sort of training program, membership in the SBP is free. So just wanted to make sure everybody's aware of that. And um, our website, please feel free to check that out. It is, it's Society of Black Pathologists with an S dot org, www.societyofblackpathologists.org. And it's we're still working on it. (laughs) It's it's not Mm -hmm. where we want it to ultimately be, but there's got a lot of good information. Our mission statement. You can apply for membership, and again, junior members are free. So, just wanted to say that.
0: I will include a link to the website in the show notes for this episode.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for being here. I'm honored to have had this conversation with you to learn more about the SBP. Uh, Thank you very much.
1: It was my honor and my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And um, hopefully I'll see you at an AAPA meeting in the future. No, I hope so. (laughs) Okay. Take care, Dennis.
0: Huge thanks to Dr. Carla Ellis. And also thank you to Dr. Nicole Jackson, who was the one who connected me with Dr. Ellis. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Jackson. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this conversation.
2: And there's are so many public health roles that we fill as forensic pathologists that I think people just don't know and don't recognize. For instance, we are intimately engaged with the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. So we have re- reporting guidelines that help protect the public um, versus unreasonable risks of injuries from these consumer products. And so when you hear about recalls, it's usually based on accidental deaths that were investigated by us. And we recognize, you know, this is not a safe product for the community. And same thing, we investigate maternal fetal deaths and we analyze mortality in communities. And there's basically a large public health role and value that is specifically and uniquely added by forensic pathology um, that's not recognized. And why is this important? Because without us basically being well-supported and well-staffed and financially supported, over time people are going to die you know, when they shouldn't. In, in the short run, right? There simply aren't enough of us. It's worsening, as we already said. And so right. what do we need to do? We need to attract trains to the field, you know? And part of that is offering competitive salaries, which we don't have, you know? I'm fortunate enough to work in an office that is considered relatively compel- competitive, but, you know, if I had gone into craft somewhere, I could be making a lot more. Um, I chose to come here because I really thought it was a calling for me,
0: You can hear more from Dr. Nicole Jackson in episode number 25. So this was a really open and honest conversation and I really appreciate the fact that Dr. Ellis felt so comfortable to be able to talk about her experiences here. I have to imagine that wasn't that easy to do. And though I can never really fully understand what those experiences were like, what I can do is listen and hear what she has to say. And I think that's an important distinction because listening and hearing are not always the same thing. As always, there will be links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. I highly encourage you to check out the Society of Black Pathologists website. And while you're doing that, you can check out the brand new peopleofpathology.com. You can listen to all of the episodes there. There are links to other podcast platforms as well. There are links to connect with me on Twitter and LinkedIn, as well as email. Thank you all for sharing the show with others and helping the podcast grow. Please keep it up, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects the listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology Podcast.